1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 20. You're dead if you don't. You're the devil if you do. Those are the extremes when it comes to whether or not your church exercises the gift of speaking in tongues in its meetings. You're dead if you don't speak in tongues is a prevalent view among Pentecostals. One respected author, R.L. Brandt, said, the concept that the gift of tongues is the greatest of the gifts is well-founded. No Christian needs feel the gift is not for him. We conclude with much assurance that when men are baptized in the Holy Spirit, they speak with other tongues. Tongues is the physical evidence of the baptism of the Spirit. You're the devil if you do speak in tongues is something cessationists like to say. Answering a question about tongues, Pastor John MacArthur said, I believe what we have today could basically be explained as demonic, counterfeit. And by the way, I don't know if you know this, Tibetan monks speak in tongues, Eskimos speak in tongues, many of their tribes, so do Mormons who don't even believe the gospel. So it's all satanic. So dead or the devil, which is it? Well, it's neither if you've been following our studies. Tongues is still a gift available to some, but not every believer in the church. Its use in your private devotions is unrestricted, but its exercise in public must follow the principles that God, especially that God wants you to build others up uh, by only always speaking in ways that everyone can understand in the church. In the meetings of the church in Corinth, the believers spoke and sang in tongues simultaneously with no interpretation. No one could understand what they were saying or singing. Paul was writing to correct what he said was an error. And so in verse 20, brethren, do not be children in understanding. However, in malice be babes, but in understanding be mature. Speaking in tongues is often promoted as a sign of spiritual maturity. In fact, the uh, quote from R.L. Brandt leaves you with that impression. The Corinthians certainly thought themselves mature in their exercise of the gift. Paul said that their understanding of the gift was childish, not childlike, which would be a good thing, but childish. He encouraged them to heed his instructions so they would, in understanding, be mature. Now, while he was giving this illustration, he hit them with the phrase, in malice, be babes or babies. Here's what I think he might be saying. It was childish for them to think that speaking in tongues was evidence of mature Christian behavior, while at the same time, if you read all of Corinthians, they were acting maliciously towards one another by suing one another, divorcing one another, causing division in the church, and openly practicing idolatry and immorality. And so these people who were saying that they had this evidence that they were spiritual and that God was in their midst and God was manifesting himself because they were all speaking in tongues... On, uh, at their service once a week, during the week, were living like the devil. Uh, and, and so Paul is pointing that out to them. Some outward manifestation of the Spirit, like speaking in tongues, is not a sign you are mature or even spiritual. Fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, produced in your life on a habitual basis, that is the sign of Christian maturity. Now, Paul's going to analyze and criticize their speaking in interpreted tongues by appealing to a passage from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, and I really hope that I can bring some clarity to this uh, because it, it gets misunderstood a lot. In verse 21, he says, in the law it is written, with men of other tongues and other lips, I will speak to this people, and yet for all that they will not hear me, says the Lord. Now, this is a paraphrase of Isaiah 28, verse 12. Apparently, this mostly Gentile congregation had a good handle on the Old Testament because Paul referred to it often. Now, let me give you the background and the context of the quote from Isaiah. 
<coughs> the Jews in Isaiah's day had been mocking the word of God Isaiah was speaking to them. He was out prophesying, warning them of certain things, and they were ignoring him and mocking him. They spoke to Isaiah in a deriding, derogatory tone. They refused to heed God's clear, intelligible words of warning. As a result, God was going to allow the northern kingdom of the Jews called Israel, northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom Judah, he was going to allow the northern kingdom of Israel to be conquered by the fierce and cruel Assyrian empire. The Assyrians did not speak Hebrew. And when you went to Assyria as a slave, they had signs all over the place that said Assyrian spoken here. They were uh, not really into cross-cultural kinds of things. They are the men of other tongues and other lips who would speak to the Jews instead of God's prophets. So basically God's saying, hey, I'm talking to you in words you can understand, and you should repent. If you don't, somebody's going to start talking to you in words you don't understand, and that somebody is the Assyrian Empire, and you're going to be judged. They're going to be conquered by a foreign people who would speak to them in a language they did not understand. It was God's judgment upon them for refusing to understand His Word and repent. Now, the application's in verse 22. Therefore, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. By tongues, Paul is referring again to uninterpreted speaking in a language unknown to the hearers. In Isaiah's day, the uninterpreted speaking of the Assyrians to the Jews was a sign of God's disapproval and displeasure with his disobedient people. In other words, when God seems to be speaking, but it is in a way that cannot be understood, it is a sign, it's a bad sign. And so when you're speaking in, in tongues and it's not interpreted and no one can understand it, it's a bad sign it, it, because God says it's, it's like what I did in the Old Testament when I judged the Hebrews and I took them to a people that couldn't, uh, whose language they couldn't understand. If an observer were to see God's people in a context of uninterpreted language, they would be justified in concluding that God was not among them, but had at least temporarily brought them into a place of discipline and judgment. Uh, the, the, uh, a bunch of people just speaking and singing in tongues with no interpretation almost is like the Tower of Babel, and that wasn't a good thing either because no one could understand each other, and it, it was a split. And so, very important, Paul, everywhere in this chapter, he's hitting you with the idea that if you're going to speak for God in church, people have to understand you. And you can speak in tongues if you want. They're going to have to understand that with an interpretation. So, tongues and prophecy function as signs in two very different ways precisely in accord with the effect each will have on unbelievers who happen into the Christian assembly. So verse 23, therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say, you are out of your mind? In Corinth, they had services in which the whole church came together in one place. Now, there were no church campuses. The believers met mostly in private homes. So either the church in Corinth was fairly small, or there was at least one very large home, or they had some large meeting place for weekly gatherings. We, we just don't know. At that weekly gathering, uninformed people and unbelievers were invited and welcomed. 
There's some debate among scholars as to exactly who the uninformed were. Could be a reference to young believers recently saved and with little information about the Christian life, or it could be a description of the unbeliever as a person who needs information about Jesus that he or she can understand in order to get saved. Uh, In either case, speaking in uninterpreted tongues was counterproductive. Not only did it withhold vital information about the gospel, it left them thinking that being a believer meant you were out of your mind and being influenced by a force you could not control. You and I can argue all day that speaking in uninterpreted tongues is a sign among believers that God has shown up in church. Paul would strongly disagree. And he also said in verse 22 that prophesying is not for unbelievers but for those who believe. He explains what he means by that in verses 24 and 25. Verse 24, if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all, he is convicted by all. Remember the context of the illustration from Isaiah? When God speaks to his people in ways that cannot be understood, it is a sign of disapproval and displeasure. The opposite is true. When God speaks to his people, to believers in ways that are supernatural but can be understood, like prophecy, it is a sign to them of his approval and pleasure. It is a sign to believers, but one that can also affect unbelievers in a positive and powerful way. The unbeliever is convinced and convicted in order that he or she might be converted to Jesus Christ. When Christians meet, God wants to impart information to those who have gathered. He certainly wants to do it supernaturally by His Holy Spirit, but it must be intelligible, it must be able to be understood. That way, if there is an unbeliever or an uninformed young believer in the service, they will be convinced by all that is said and done. And many of you would have this testimony that before you were a Christian, uh, you came to a church service or a Bible study or you watched a crusade on television or went to a crusade and God, the Holy Spirit, used the Word of God that was taught or preached or presented in an intelligible way, in a logical fashion uh, that you could understand. He used that to convince you of the truth that Jesus Christ was risen from the dead and to convict you of your sins so that you would become a Christian. So this convincing is nothing less than giving God's Word the opportunity to affect the heart of the hearer. It is presenting God's Word in ways that can be understood so it can penetrate between the soul and the spirit and reveal Jesus to the hearer. You know, a lot of times I think folks that have a more Pentecostal persuasion forget that there is power in the Word of God itself. And they, 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 I think a few weeks ago or maybe last week I told you that there's a common criticism that, uh, or kind of a sarcasm that comes up every few years where people will say of a certain church that you believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Bible. In other words, you've replaced the work of the Spirit with the Bible. And I understand what they're getting at. They're saying that you're not really exercising gifts of the Spirit. You're not open to the manifestation of the Spirit. But it's derogatory to me because they're acting like the Word of God is something limp compared to the Spirit of God who wrote the Word of God, inspiring men to do so, and that there is power in the Word of God. Paul said the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. He didn't say tongues is the power of God unto salvation, and so you better start speaking in tongues. He said, no, the gospel, 
And then what is the gospel? He said it's that Jesus came as a man, and as the God-man, he died for the sins of the world, and your sins particularly, if you receive him as your Savior, he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and he ever lives to intercede for you as the God-man. He's coming back. Um, he's going to judge the, uh, you know, the, the living and the dead, and, and we'll go on into eternity. And so uh, there's power in the Word of God itself. It's alive, and it accomplishes a purpose. And that's why earlier the Apostle Paul said he would rather speak five words someone could understand than 10,000 words in a tongue they could not understand. Uh, and, and I think you see the value of that. One is a mere outward showing of the Holy Spirit's gifting. The other gives the Holy Spirit opportunity to do a miracle in a person's life. Now, once convinced, the person can be convicted. If the hearer is an unbeliever, he or she can be convicted of sin and of righteousness and of the judgment to come. I say that a lot. Uh, you probably heard me say that um, because it's something that Jesus mentioned in the Gospels. He said that you're convicted of sin, that you realize that you're a sinner with no hope of salvation. Uh, of righteousness means that you understand you have no righteousness of your own, nothing to offer God, no way to get into heaven or to make right your sin. Uh, and of the judgment to come means that if you don't get right with God, you face judgment that is coming upon the human race. Uh, and so that's the work of the Holy Spirit among non-believers, to convinc convince them of sin and of righteousness and of judgment to come, of their personal sin, of the righteousness of Jesus Christ that they need, and of judgment to be avoided by having their names written in the book of life. If the hearer is an uninformed believer, he or she can understand that God's Word is His enabling for them to live the Christian life. And if the person is an apathetic or a backslidden believer, they are exhorted to repent and rededicate themselves to the Lord. And so speaking words that can be understood are just very, very critical uh, for Christians and non-Christians. And, and they are manifestations of the Holy Spirit and of God's power. Verse 25, and thus the secrets of his heart are revealed, and so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. Ah, finally something Pentecostal. The person was slain by the Holy Spirit and fell down. Well, first of all, it's debatable whether or not this was actually what Paul meant. The phrase falling down on his face could simply be a figure of speech for the fact that the person got saved or rededicated their life. We use expressions like this all the time. I know you think, well, that's a stretch, but have you ever said that something floored you? Say, man, I saw that and it just floored me. Did you actually fall down? Probably not. You uh, are just using it to express the extent of the emotion that you felt. And so I think Paul was simply describing the strong emotional reaction a person might have to the convincing and convicting work of the Holy Spirit as they are converted. I guess they could fall to their knees or come forward weeping or experience a wave of joy, and, and no one's against any of that. No one said you couldn't be emotional or have a, an emotional reaction or uh, even a physical reaction like falling to your knees or, or su such a thing. Now, in the classic Pentecostal experience of being slain in the Spirit, have you, seen, have, you, have you seen people slain in the Spirit either in person or on television? Raise your hand if you have. This is not a trick question. Which way do they always fall? They always fall backwards. Well, that's a problem here because Paul says these people fell on their face. And so this cannot be used as a proof text for being slain in the Spirit 
Otherwise, they've got it backwards, literally. And so I would believe more that a person is slain in the Spirit if by themselves they would fall forward and worship the Lord rather than be nudged by a pastor and fall into the waiting arms of deacons and uh, ushers, you know, hopefully. And it's interesting to me that now some of you go on these trust building, uh, you know, and team building things where you have to trust somebody's going to catch you. Hey, the church invented that, you know, but... uh, just say hallelujah on your way down or something like that. But, but anyway, so, uh, so if these people were being slain in the spirit, they were doing it all wrong. They were going the wrong way, you might say, as you know, they're going forward. Now, if I'm sounding overly critical of Pentecostalism, it's, I'm not. The context of our verses demand we speak plainly about Pentecostal excesses because the church at Corinth needed correcting. Any church that is misusing the gift of speaking in tongues in a similar manner needs this correction. We cannot conclude God is among us on the basis of outward physical phenomena. God is already among us whenever we gather together. What He wants to do is penetrate our hearts with words spoken that can be understood and then powerfully applied by His Spirit. Amen?